Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio, and for the next two hours, we'll be talking politics, news, history, style, and of course, food. So don't touch that dial. Former Democrat Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, now an independent, and suddenly considered a real prospect for vice president uh, with Donald Trump, also speculated as a potential running mate for independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Today, she is an independent. She's going to be joining us on the Roger Stone Show uh, in the wake of a particularly strong performance at the Conservative Political Action Committee conference in Washington. She'll be with us in just a bit. Uh, Some people think that the indictment of the FBI whistleblower for lying about Hunter Biden and the Ukrainian-based Burisma Energy Company means that the case against Hunter Biden is falling apart. But Garrett Ziegler with the Marco Polo nonprofit organization joins us today to tell us why he thinks that's not true. His nonprofit has digitized and made available all of the material in Hunter Biden's laptop. We're going to be talking with him shortly. Then over 10 years ago, Penn State assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky was convicted of sexual assault against multiple minors, but investigative journalist Frank Parlato thinks that Sandusky was falsely accused and unjustly convicted. We're going to hear why he thinks that today on the Roger Stone Show. That former President Donald Trump won the South Carolina primary is not news. He won uh, by an almost two-to-one margin over former Governor Nikki Haley in her home state. But what news is the fact that Trump piled up the largest single number of votes of any presidential candidate, Republican or Democrat, in the history of the South Carolina primary. Trump, uh, keeping a breakneck schedule, did a rally in South Carolina, then beelined for Nashville, where he spoke to the Religious Broadcasters Convention, and then returned to South Carolina to savor victory. Here's President Donald Trump at the Religious Broadcasters. 
All right. Evidently, we have uh, lost uh, that clip, but we're going to uh, continue. We're, we're going to continue. Uh, so the real question is, why uh, is uh, Nikki Haley staying in this race? It, we are beyond the point where uh, there's any plausible possibility that she can acquire the nomination. She has suffered back-to-back -back defeats in the Iowa caucuses uh, and uh, the New Hampshire primary. Uh, now a stunning loss in the South Carolina primary. South Carolina primary didn't really become a thing until 1980. Uh, here, we're, we're ready now. Let's play President Trump uh, just before his tumultuous victory in South Carolina. I'm here today because I know that to achieve victory in this fight, just like in the battles of the past, we still need the hand of our Lord and the grace of Almighty God. We have to have that. Now, that's uh, unique in the sense that Donald Trump, kind of like former President Richard Nixon, who was a man of very deep faith, a man who, when he lived in New York, attended the famous church of Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, was always loath to talk about his faith. Uh, Billy Graham, uh, who was a great friend of many presidents, Republican and Democrat, urged the former president, then president, to talk about his faith. But Nixon thought that faith was a very personal thing. So it is, I think, uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, that's why that bite is particularly important. Yet evangelical Christians play an important part of the coalition that elected Donald Trump in 2016. It's interesting that evangelical Christians turned out at about 78% in 2016, but only turned out at about 65% in 2020. So uh, it, it is uh, now incumbent on us to figure out why Nikki Haley is staying in this race. She has no prospect of victory. We have the upcoming Super Tuesday primaries in early March in which multiple states will select their delegates, mostly southern states, uh, but it's the largest single collection and selection of delegates to the Republican National Committee on any one day. Uh, and she has money, but not enough to compete in all of those places. There has been some speculation that it is her intention to bolt the Republican Party and run as an independent or a third-party candidate. Some may remember when Congressman John Anderson did that in 1980 after sustaining early losses in the primaries to former California Governor Ronald Reagan. I think that is unlikely for a couple of reasons. First of all, many states have what are called sore loser laws. That means that if you contended in the Republican or Democratic primary in that state and lost, you cannot now come back and seek the same office as an independent or a third party candidate. Secondarily, as we've discussed here many times on the Roger Stone show, the ballot access requirements are very, very difficult for an independent, never mind a third-party candidate. Traditionally, the Libertarian Party and the Green Party have managed to petition their way on the ballot in the vast majority of states, but starting from scratch would be exceedingly difficult. Perhaps, however, Nikki Haley is 
eyeing the so-called No Labels Party. Now, that effort, uh, headed by former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, uh, which has been flirting with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who announced last week that no, he would not be their candidate, has been working and does have the funding to get another candidate on the ballot. It is my view, however, that if Nikki Haley were to run as independent, she doesn't draw votes from Donald Trump. She doesn't pull conservative or or uh, or conservative Democrat or independent votes or those moving towards the Trump camp. She actually uh, would merely take more votes from Joe Biden. So it was with John Anderson in his candidacy. No, I think she's there to do maximum damage to Donald Trump. Why do I say that? Well, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said recently that Nikki Haley was our single best surrogate, speaking of the Biden campaign. Uh, An analysis of Nikki Haley's campaign fundraising indicates that the vast majority of her money is coming from liberal Democrats and supporters uh, of uh, Joe Biden. And in fact, the Biden campaign is actually featuring Nikki Haley in their advertising. Extraordinary. So I I think that the independent route is unlikely. I think that perhaps she thinks that if she continues to damage Trump, her reward would be, oh, I don't know, a cabinet position in the next Democratic administration. Uh, President Trump was very wise uh, on Saturday night after winning. He kept his focus solely on Joe Biden. Uh, He barely mentioned Nikki Haley. I think that was solid political strategy. The New York drama continues with New York Judge N. Gorin now forcing Donald Trump to post a half-billion-dollar bond if he wants to appeal the verdict in which he was convicted uh, in a case uh, where I think most people in the country now know Uh, that he was charged with overvaluing his assets uh, in a case in which he borrowed money using those assets for collateral. Now, in this particularly strange case, the banks from whom he borrowed money all testified in his behalf that none of them felt defrauded. They all conducted their own appraisals of his properties. They all lent him money. They all got paid back. In fact, they made some $40 million in interest. So this case, while Democrats in New York may be rejoicing, particularly the New York Attorney General, actually out in the country, and I just came from Pittsburgh, this is actually redounding to the president's benefit. Strangely enough, this horrific financial stress that they are subjecting him to is not playing well with the voters, who very clearly see a politically motivated case. Will this be the case uh, in the upcoming business records case that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is bringing? Well, it's a a case where Trump is not gagged, and once again, uh, he can counterpunch in the media. So uh, I think this continued witch hunt, at least with these cases, is benefiting Donald Trump in the polls. It's interesting that the latest odds out of Las Vegas now have Trump at a 64.6 chance of being president, 
uh, Nikki Haley at 34%, Ron DeSantis at 0.3%, Chris Christie at 0.2%, and, well, Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out of the race. In the general election, uh, the market makers in Las Vegas, who are never wrong, now have a 53% chance for the election of Donald Trump, a 33% chance for the election of incumbent Joe Biden, while 5% saying Michelle Obama will be the next president, and 3% odds of Gavin Newsom. The vice presidential sweepstakes have begun in earnest. For anybody who saw it last week, uh, in a town hall with Fox's Laura Ingram, Ingram, it was Ingram who threw out this shortlist. Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, Tim Scott, the U.S. Senator from South Carolina, Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, the former Hawaii congresswoman who joins us right here today on The Roger Stone Show, Vivek Ramaswamy, who ran an interesting but ultimately unsuccessful campaign uh, for president, uh, and uh, Byron Donalds. Now, the problem with that list, which is, by the way, a list in which Trump reacted and said they're all solid people, but that clearly is not Donald Trump's short list. It's actually Laura Ingram's solid list. Uh, as I've explained previously here on The Roger Stone Show, uh, that the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution essentially says that a party cannot nominate a candidate for president and vice president who are legal residents of the same state. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who I don't think is under consideration, and Byron Donalds, who I like very much, are both, of course, Floridians, and Donald Trump is a Floridian. This would also rule out the possibility of, uh, say, Senator Marco Rubio, or Senator Rick Scott, or General Michael Flynn. They're all Floridians. Yes, it is still the law. Yes, uh, it is possible to nominate two people from the same state as legal residents. But in the event that a party did that and the party carried that state, well, then the party would forfeit the, I think it is, 37 electoral votes of the state of Florida, something Republicans cannot afford to do. Uh, President Richard Nixon once told me that in looking for a candidate for vice president, don't look for anyone who can help you, just try to choose someone who doesn't hurt you. Well, while that may be uh, a little uh, cynical, uh, the real political trick here is, first and foremost, to select an individual who's fully qualified to be president, someone who has the experience, the judgment, the temperament, to be president should, God forbid, Donald Trump not be able to fulfill his term. Then secondarily, I think the days of ticket balancing are really over. In other words, the days when both parties had Republican, or I should say conservative and liberal wings, uh, in the case of the Republican Party, the wing of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, as opposed to the wing of Nelson Rockefeller and George Romney, uh, the Democratic Party had Adlai Stevenson uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt on their left wing, as opposed to, say, Richard Russell uh, and uh, Lyndon Johnson in their more conservative wing. The parties no longer have wings. 
the new Republican Party is the party of America first. It is the party of Donald Trump. It has become the party of working people. There is no liberal Republican wing anymore. But that's also true in the Democratic Party. You see, the Democratic Party has become uh, equally uh, monolithic. It is essentially uh, the party of of, uh, the party of Truman, the party of Kennedy, uh, the anti-communist, pro-capitalist, traditional Democratic Party that stood for a for a strong national defense and an aggressive foreign policy no longer exists. I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show, and we're going to be right back with more news, history, and politics. Don't touch that dial. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone and you're tuned in to the Roger Stone Show. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store and get the 77 WABC radio app for your cell phone. That way you won't miss any of the extraordinarily dynamic programming, both talk and entertainment that we have here at 77 WABC. You don't want to miss a minute of our epic programming. Meanwhile, uh, the Democrats just seem to want to recycle Russia, Russia, Russia. That hoax uh, is back again. Here's the thing about the American left. It doesn't matter how much their claims are disproven or debunked or thoroughly discredited. Just wait a little while and they'll be back to recycle them yet again. Donald Trump is soft on Putin. Tucker Carlson is a Russian agent. Uh, uh, This goes on and on and on. I get some of this flack, but it was only roughly uh, a week, maybe a little longer ago, that we learned that CIA Director John Brennan went to multiple foreign intelligence agencies to get them to spy on 26 associates of Donald Trump. Here's Dan Bongino exposing it. Folks, I've never shown you this before. And I debated showing it to you now. My list is more than 26 names. I'm obviously not going to tell you who I got this from, but the list of people to bump and target with, you know, Russian interaction and and, and spying, put it on the screen. I've never shown you this before. This is from my source. Ted Cruz. Donald Trump, Ben Carson. Some of the names are not spelled right. It's for a reason I can't describe. I'll I'll maybe go into it a different time. Don Trump Jr., Eric, Ivanka, Lara Trump, Melania, Jared Kushner, Jason Miller, Dave Bossie, Sam Clovis, Paul Manafort, Jason Johnson, Carter Page, Papadopoulos, Alice Stewart, 
Victoria Coates, Christopher Bourne, Jason Osborne, Chris Christie, Don McGahn, Michael Cohen, Spoonrunner, Michael Flynn, Alexander Jones, Jeff Sessions, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone. Well, there you have it, folks. Now, to investigate an American citizen without probable cause, I would think is quite illegal. Uh, but the, we- the reason that uh, Mr. Brennan, according to uh, the New York Post and to the great uh, reporting of Matt Taibbi uh, and his uh, colleagues, uh, Mike Schellenberger, went to various, in this case, the English-speaking nations, the so-called Five Eyes, is pr- to provide plausible deniability down the road should there be a U.S.-based or congressional-based investigation of their actions. This allows them to say that, well, they didn't do it. Uh, In my uh, epic biography of Richard Nixon, Tricky Dick, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Richard M. Nixon, I detail how J. Edgar Hoover, curious about what Richard Nixon was doing in Hong Kong in the years that he was out of power, his wilderness years, uh, actually uh, asked British intelligence uh, to spy on Nixon in his hotel room. Uh, That spying found that he had a friendship with a Hong Kong-based hostess, but there was nothing untoward going on. Hoover actually told Nixon right after his election that the former vice president at that time had been surveilled. Once again, this allowed Hoover complete and total deniability. Will anybody be prosecuted for any of these crimes? Special counsel John Durham took five long years to tell us what we already knew. Sorry, there was no Russian collusion uh, between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. In fact, there was no collaboration between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. And no, I did not serve as a cutout between the two of them. Uh, And no, I never received or passed on any material whatsoever from WikiLeaks. The the, uh, evidence presented in my trial actually proves that. But because I was gagged, well, you would never know that. In a little noticed development, but a very important one, uh, Donald Trump at the last minute filed or his lawyers, I should say, filed a motion in the 11th Circuit of Florida questioning the legality of Special Counsel Jack Smith's appointment under the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Now, it's important to note uh, that a similar motion has been rejected by the D.C. Circuit Court. That actually took place during my trial, but former U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese filed a very compelling amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court making that exact claim. Uh, Keep an eye on this motion, folks. It is a sleeper. If the 11th Circuit uh, is to hear this and adjudicate it, it could have the effect of killing both the Florida and the D.C.-based cases against Donald Trump. Very, very much worth keeping an eye on. Here, in my opinion, is uh, the biggest scandal of the week reported in the New York Times. 
Uh, I've talked many times here when I give you my family recipes about the importance of San Marzano tomatoes, which are prized by chefs around the world for their intense flavor. Uh, and uh, I always insist upon them in all of my cooking. Now, San Marzano tomatoes are not a brand of tomatoes. They are a style of tomato that is grown only in the San Marzano Valley of Italy. Simpson Imports, a Pennsylvania tomato seller, has been selling Roma tomatoes in cans and boxes, but a California woman named Andrea Valiente said in a filed last year that the company had used highly misleading tomato packaging to trick consumers into believe that they were purchasing genuine San Marzano tomatoes and paying San Marzano prices. Uh, this lawsuit uh, is actually going to be allowed to move forward. The labeling of San Marzano tomatoes in the United States has been loose. You see, in the European Union, only tomatoes that are grown in this specific region of Italy and that fulfill a number of other actual specific requirements receive the designation of protected origin, of or DOP, to show that they are, in fact, San Marzano tomatoes. In the United States, uh, many uh, sellers sell various uh, uh, versions of San Marzano's. You can find them at D'Agostino's and Gristini's, but you want to be very careful and look at the can. San Marzano-style tomatoes are not San Marzano tomatoes. Now, the company, I should say, uh, denies all of these claims, claiming that they sell uh, Roma tomatoes, and they have changed their labeling so it is less misleading. Uh, but the federal court allowed that the lawsuit could go forward. It's important to note that in 2019, that three other California cooks filed a similar lawsuit against the New Jersey-based tomato seller, Asento Fine Foods, claiming that they had also labeled tomatoes as San Marzano tomatoes. Sento told the New York Times that those allegations were completely and totally unfounded uh, and that those plaintiffs dropped their lawsuit in 2021. Before the show is over today, I'm going to tell you my very own family recipe for chicken cacciatore. Uh, and there is no doubt whatsoever uh, that we require San Marzano tomatoes. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. On deck, uh, Garrett Ziegler talking about uh, the Hunter Biden case. Frank Parlato re-examining whether Jerry Sandusky was justly convicted and incarcerated. Uh, and uh, the big interview of the day, former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, now suddenly a red-hot contender for the potential of Vice President of the United States. I'm Roger Stone, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. This is the Roger Stone Show, and you're here at 77 WABC. I really strongly urge you to go to the 77 WABC radio app and download the program uh, to uh, make sure that you don't miss any of the amazing programming here at 77 WABC. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Larry Kudlow on Saturdays, the man who turbocharged the American economy where he implemented the tax cuts and regulatory cuts under President Donald Trump. Or the queen of gossip, Cindy Adams, my good friend Dominic Carter, who I heard clash with Congressman Anthony Weiner yesterday on Anthony Weiner's program Uh, In the middle, uh, an epic confrontation. You don't want to miss any of that, folks, so please go to 77WABC's app. Uh, You can find it on the App Store and download it to your phone. I also want to point out that you can listen to us uh, at at WABCradio.com where we are downloading, uh, I should say, uh, live streaming in 73 countries around the world. So you don't have to miss any of what we are doing here uh, at the Roger Stone Show or any of this great programming. We are waiting for uh, Garrett Ziegler uh, of the Marco Polo organization. Uh, And uh, some of you may have seen recently Uh, that the FBI uh, whistleblower was indicted for lying uh, about uh, the Burisma Energy Company uh, and uh, their interaction with the Biden family. That has led some people to believe that the case against Hunter Biden is falling apart, but Garrett Ziegler of the Marco Polo nonprofit organization does not think that is the case, and he joins us now. I appreciate it, Roger. Thanks for having me on. A lot to talk about. Uh, Garrett, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, You are uh, a former White House aide to uh, President Donald Trump. You're also the hardest working man I know. And you and a very small uh, and probably undercompensated staff have done an amazing job of digitizing and making available all of Hunter Biden's laptop material. Now, since uh, I have myself uh, received uh, uh, a subpoena from Hunter Biden's lawyers, which is an absurdity because all I know about Hunter Biden's laptops or what I read in the New York Post or read in Breitbart News or what I later read uh, at your website, which is marcopolousa.org, Uh, And I got a threatening letter telling me that I can't talk about this anymore, which uh, (laughs) I I ignored. Uh, Many people, particularly Dan Goldman, the congressman from Manhattan, are trying to say uh, that this action 
by David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in, yes. in Delaware, who's now a special counsel investigating uh, Hunter Biden, uh, means that the case against Hunter is falling apart. Uh, why don't we start here, uh, Garrett? Why don't you give us a yes. brief uh, background on Mr. Weiss and his handling of this case from the beginning and take us to where we are today? Yes, so uh, I think that we'll start with the, um, the, the, the very first fact, which is that Hunter Biden served on the board of a Cypriot domiciled Ukrainian-based energy company, Burisma. A lot of people know that. Well, what this FBI confidential human source told to his handler based out of the Seattle field office is that he spoke with folks connected to Burisma that they paid Joe and Hunter a $5 million bribe uh, to each of them. And so what Weiss, who, like you said, is now the special counsel, along with Derek Hines and Leo Wise, they have indicted this confidential human source, a rat, if you want to use that term, um, for statements that he made to feds during uh, normal routine conversations. And again, the background is this man has been paid for sure. We know this for a fact since 2010, and he's been paid uh the exact dollar amount has not been put in court documents, but it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so this is a very atypical indictment. Everybody needs to realize that, that uh, they that very rarely do they indict CHSs, and even more – and even more rarely do they put all of the information about the confidential human source in the indictments. And so they indicted him in the same district that they indicted Hunter, the Central District of California. And over the past 10 days, like you said, uh, Dan Goldman and Jamie Raskin have been on the airwaves saying that this throws cold water on the entire debacle, on the entire uh, Biden shakedown. And the fact of the matter is, is that is simply not the case. The case against Smirnoff, the CHS, is about his statements to feds. It says nothing about the underlying action of Joe withholding a billion dollars in taxpayer loan guarantees via the IMF to Burisma for the firing of Victor Shokin. So there's really a couple of chains in the allegations. It doesn't get back to the actual conduct at hand, which is – during the fall of 2015, there was an interagency memo that basically signed off on Shokin's performance, that he was doing a good job cleaning up to the best degree that he could in Ukraine, the prosecutor general's office. And then randomly and seemingly out of the blue in late November, Joey reverses the U.S. government's position, even though we have paper, again, saying that the interagency concurred with it. And then we have uh, audio messages that were – calls basically released between Poroshenko and Joey and Poroshenko and John Kerry uh, showing how they condition that $1 billion. So again, this indictment doesn't go to that underlying conduct. What it says the confidential human source lied about, and again, it's an allegation, and they can indict a paper bag, is that he wasn't where he said he was when he when he said he was to the to the handler, right? So he said he was at Vienna at a certain time, and that's where he spoke with Lachevsky, the CEO of the 
of the company or the the owner of the company really he wasn't the ceo but he was the top dog he was the mini gark as they called him uh that he wasn't in vienna at that time when he when he when he recounted that conversation with lachevsky and then he wasn't at another place uh, and so what this what this gets at is a it's basically a, a match made in heaven for dan coleman because he's a sophist he's able to convince the public that the underlying uh, allegations are untrue, when in fact it's a uh, dub, it's a one double oh one and a fifteen seventeen violation that they're getting him on. You know about eighteen USC one zero zero one because it's what they got Mike Flynn on, which is basically they get you in a room without an attorney and they say that you lied to him, and um, it's ridiculous. And so there's those two counts. It's just a two count indictment. And I know for those listening that that was a that was a long background, but this is a rushing river of a saga. And if you're going to be jumping in midstream, it goes uh, to the heart of the matter, which is did Joe change U.S. policy to get rid of Victor Shokin? And you know what's convenient? I don't think this is brought up very much, Roger. What's convenient is that Joey always has plausible deniability. Uh, because he can say that he wanted Shokin gone for a, for a myriad of reasons, even though uh, he can say that it was the U.S. government's position, which we know, again, was not, was not the case at the time. He reversed it. it. It doesn't have to be the case that he exclusively fired him for, uh, for Burisma's benefit. We know that he did because he said it on tape, and we have the emails, the internal email traffic from Vadim Pazarsky to Hunter Biden asking him to weigh in with his father on this. But there's always some plausible deniability baked in. And, again, this is going to be fascinating to see uh, what they do to Smirnoff. I, I've never been more disappointed um, in a U.S. magistrate judge than I was this week. The magistrate judge in, in the District of Nevada basically stood down and let the district court judge rearrest Smirnoff. So Smirnoff gets – gets arrested at the Harry Reid International Airport. It kills me to even say that that's the airport's name. But the the big airport in Vegas uh, last week, I think it was on February 13th, when Smirnoff flew in, he gets arrested. He has a detention hearing in the District of Nevada. Uh, he hires some you know high-powered attorneys. He gets released. And then, Roger, 15 hours later, when he's at his attorney's office, he gets rearrested. So there's there's multiple storylines here in that David Weiss, his special counsel, really doesn't want this guy out on the street for some reason. And, you know, I think they got a tiger by the tail now. This trial, if it goes to that, will be absolutely fascinating because Smirnoff will be able to, to – and his attorneys will be able to go into it will exactly what did Zolchevsky say and try to prove his innocence. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Mr. Weiss, before he was the special counsel, but when he was charged uh, with investigating Hunter Biden in his role as the U.S. attorney, a number of the more onerous potential charges uh, against Hunter Biden lapse under the statute of limitations, no? That is exactly right. I look at it as basically if you're if you're on a grading scale, A, B, and C, what Hunter is being charged with in the Central District are really the B-grade crimes, the tax crimes. What David Weiss, who is singularly responsible for this, it's an entire fiasco. But ultimately, 
um, he could have made it happen if he wanted to, if he if he stood if he actually cared about the equal application of the law, um, and not just maintaining the Delaware way. What they would have indicted Hunter on is FARA violations and money laundering to the tune of multiple millions of dollars. So the gun charge. So they're, the special counsel has has filed charges on in two different venues against Hunter for those at home. The gun charge in the District of Delaware are what the guys in my group call C-grade charges. We think they're stupid. In fact, um, it's not that I agree with Abby Lowell, but I agree with the Second Amendment in that Hunter may actually have a defense there because a circuit court opinion said that that statute is unconstitutional. So David is basically – David and, and, and Leo Weiss and Derek Hines, we call them the limited hangout artist. They are charging Hunter for the dumbest stuff. We lay out in our report, which anybody can – can go read for free at bidenreport.com 459 violations of state and federal laws and regs and they're charging hunter for the c and b grade crimes these are these are things that make uh make hunter look like just a normal normal swamp captain when in fact he was much bigger than that because of who his daddy is right the story is not that there's never been a son a black sheep son of a politician before. That story is as old as Washington, D.C. What makes it so fascinating is the guy was the son of the sitting VP, and he left his laptop. And so we have all these first-degree communications proving proving their complicity. And you mentioned uh, the subpoena they, they, they served you, Roger, this ridiculous overbroad subpoena that they also issued to me in the Delaware court case. Um, they won't accept the reality that he just forgot to pick up his laptop. Kevin Morris and all these other characters are trying to spin you and Keith Avlo and Tyler Nixon into this total fiction. It's they, they said that you know that somehow Keith Avlo made a clone of Hunter's laptop. That laptop that Hunter left there was picked up by the DEA. Keith Avlo didn't touch it for a second, um, and we know that for a fact because. Uh, Keith Ablo spoke to one of my friends, Brad Brickenfeld. And so, you know, th- this entire thing is a result of Hunter not being able to accept reality. If he were if he were to just buck up and be a man and say, guess what, I messed up, forgive me, um, the country would treat him much differently. But it's this digging in of the heels, aided and abetted by Kevin Morris and all of his cash, that is – you know, prohibiting us from moving forward. But I'm very displeased uh, with the special counsel's office. They're charging the wrong stuff. The tax stuff is important, but the, really the meat of the crimes are the money laundering. It's like trying to get Al Capone. Yeah, they got Al Capone with taxes, but, you know, it's really a failure of the feds not to get them on the meaty stuff. Now, one of the false narratives that gets repeated in social media and elsewhere over and over again is that uh, Hunter Biden was treated uh, worse than Roger and Nidia Stone because uh, we uh, evaded $2.3 million in taxes. Let me be very clear. He failed to report almost $10 million in income, never reported it. My wife and I have reported every single penny of our income and have accurately reported every single of our rather meager assets. Uh, There was never any finding that we hid or improperly reported anything. Now, we cannot pay, unlike 
uh, Hunter Biden. I don't have some Hollywood sugar daddy to waltz in and pay my enormous tax bill. So I struggle to pay them on a monthly basis. And sadly, I'll be paying them for the rest of my life. But apples and oranges, we evaded not a penny and our tax filings are entirely accurate. Uh, but that doesn't stop mm-hmm. people from smearing you every day. Uh, Garrett, tell us yeah. about uh, the Marco Polo organization, uh, what you have done, and where can people get the fruits of your research? Yes, thank you. And I'll just add one quick thing about that, about that apples and oranges comparison. You know, they have, because of his laptop and other things, real quick, Roger, he took so many willful acts. There are so many examples of Hunter paying for hookers, blow, and other things when he knew he had outstanding tax liabilities. So, again, it's apples and oranges. Part of that research, the reason why I can say that so confidently, and Hunter will never sue me for defamation, is because, like you said, our Marco Polo group, which is basically private investigators, an attorney, a forensic accountant, we are taking the tools of private investigative work and applying them to opposition research. That's what that's what we do. We do opposition research. We're not a private firm. We're a nonprofit C3. And our big project, the thing that we spent over two years on, is writing this comprehensive dossier about the laptop. And the reason why they have a particular hatred for me is because, like you said, we put all the emails online for free, and any reporter in the world or any person in the world, for that matter, can go – look through those and download them themselves. So if anybody listening to this wants to go and look at all the emails, all 128,000 of them that concern the American First Family and their degenerate criminal son, you can go to bidenlaptopemails.com or if you want to look at all the photos, get this, we just ran some stats on our site and the the email site, Biden Laptop Email, still gets about 2,500 unique visitors per day. Again, if you do the math, that's you know several hundred per hour. Our photo site, BidenLaptopMedia.com, is getting 15,000 unique visitors per day still, and it was released last June. So if you want to look at all the photos, and the photos have all the metadata attached to them. So again, Denver Riggleman, who's a failed congressman, uh, never Trumper, Trump derangement syndrome loon down in Virginia, he said that none of it has a chain of custody. It's not verifiable. If you want to prove Denver Riggleman wrong, Go to BidenLaptopMedia.com, download all of the metadata, and say, Denver, in America, it's on the person making the allegation to provide evidence. So where is your evidence of falsification? What has All we did was take the data from his abandoned device and put it online and redacted the genitalia. There is considerable genitalia, not only of Hunter Biden, but Bo Biden's widow. Again, I want everybody at home to realize the president of the United States approved – and publicly supported an affair between his son and the widow of his dead son. Get that through. Everybody needs to understand that, that in March of 2017, Joey gave an approving quote to Vanity Fair in the New York Post when it came out that Hunter was banging his brother's widow. That is what decency means to the Bidens. So Jill said that we're restoring decency. Uh, Folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Garrett Ziegler of the Marco Polo Organization, and we'll be right back with more from Garrett Ziegler. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. 
and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. This is The Roger Stone Show. We're visiting with Garrett Ziegler of the Marco Polo nonprofit organization. You can find them at marcopolousa.org where you can uh, either download the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop or you can order a bound version. Uh, That's what I've done. I've given it to a number of my friends. It is both shocking and compelling. Uh, Garrett and his team have meticulously footnoted the uh, the the laptop contents so that you can understand who the various players are and what they have done. As he points out, the X-rated sections have been blurred, so you have to worry about having this around the house where kids might see it. Uh, Garrett, how would you rate the House uh, Oversight Committee, the House Committees charged with investigating the Biden crime family? Well, I must preface this with my parents and the people in my life have always called me an 80 an 80-year-old curmudgeon in a 30-year-old body. So, I'm a pretty tough grader. I would say 4 out of 10 uh for the oversight committee. They've definitely done more than Republicans have in the past, more than the Benghazi debacle where uh, again, I'm not really a fan of Trey Gowdy where it was just uh basically in my opinion a swing and a whiff. Uh, so I think it's a four out of ten. I think that the uh, testimony – remember, this is a great time to be talking, Roger, because Hunter is going to be coming into the Congress on Wednesday. His testimony is on Wednesday. I'll be there in Washington, uh, not in the room, but I'll be doing some interviews during that. We'll see how that plays out. They had Uncle Jimmy, the mobster, who even dressed like one last Wednesday. We've talked about Jimmy before on your program. So I think that it's a four out of ten right now, but again, the test is not over. The test is whether they're going to be getting to people closer to Joe. Rob Walker, these folks are are, are, uh, essential to the Biden grift. But folks like Mel Monzak, for example, Joe's law partner going back to 1969, he's been his power of attorney since 1986. Monzak knows where the figurative bodies are buried, and of course Hunter does. So I think this is going to be a critical month. We'll see how articulate the the GOP is responding to the professional sophists like Goldman and Raskin. I'm glad you brought up Goldman. He's a particular thorn in our side, not because – He's all that effective, but because he has no shame, he and Weissman go on, and they are they are literally the spawn of Satan with regard to the Bidens. Almost everything they say is a lie, every single line, meaning they think like, – like we talked about at the, at the top, the Republicans and – and I'm trying to get back to your question. The Republicans have to be very clear. This indictment of Smirnoff is about what he told feds. It is not about the underlying – uh, reality of of Joey withholding the aid 
on the condition that Shokin is getting fired is is getting fired. That's not what this indictment is about. And so, if the Republicans are smart enough and 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 have enough articulatable abilities to be able to do that, they'll be it, it'll be fine. But if they let that DHS informant a one double oh one indictment throw cold water on this entire we have years of evidence years not just for ukraine but remember this allegation of smirnoff i want everybody to, to to remember it doesn't touch on romania remember joey was talking about restoring uh you know non-corrupt actors in romania at the very same time his son was getting paid a million dollars by a real estate tycoon named Gabriel Popovicu over there trying to overturn his bribery case. And Louis Free, who Hunter called a close friend who wanted to go into business with Joey after his VP term, was their main partner. So this thing with Spirnoff doesn't touch on any other countries but the Ukraine, where there's like there's a cornucopia of sin and a cornucopia of money laundering. And it's not just with Ukraine. It's with Kazakhstan, Romania, China. Uh, Kevin Morris, like you said, the Hollywood sugar daddy. Kevin Morris now owns the 10% share of the Chinese uh, equity fund that Hunter Biden had. So this whole idea of divesting, Hunter just gave it to a sugar brother. He didn't even sell it. All he did was give – all Morris did was uh, assume the debt. So now Morris has a – 10% 10% stake of BHR, which, according to a liberal economist at the University of Chicago, is valued anywhere between 6 to $20 million, Roger. And that was in 2019 money. So depending on what their balance sheet looks like right now, uh, Kevin Morris could own a $10 million asset, and that alone could pay for all of the liquid cash that and I should disclose to your audience that Kevin Morris has sued us and lost in court over doxing because we figured it because we figured out his his plane's tail number and we figured out that Kevin Morris paid for Hunter Biden to fly on a private jet to a to a child support hearing to reduce his payments so again everybody in America should know that Joe wants his son to reduce child support payments and then took a private jet to that hearing it is stuff that even Tom Wolf couldn't even muster up in his best novel writing days is absolute absolute scum All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Let me thank my guest, Garrett Ziegler. You can go to MarcoPoloUSA.org to order your very own copy of Hunter Biden's laptop or to download the fruits of his research right there. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you very much for giving me the venue. Godspeed. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. 
I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio, the most dynamic and among the most powerful AM radio stations in the world. If you don't live in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, you can always find us at wabcradio.com, where we are live streaming worldwide. Recently rated as the number one talk radio station in the nation. You don't want to miss any of the great programming here at 77 WABC. Uh, It's extraordinarily difficult to be an independent investigative journalist today. Uh, It doesn't really matter the quality of your investigative research and your reporting. Uh, You are subject to the vagaries and the uh, and the difficulty of breaking through the din of corporately owned media. But Frank Parlato Jr., an investigative journalist uh, who is at the helm of the Frank Report, has broken the mold. It was the deep investigative reporting of Frank Parlato uh, that brought down the Nexium sex cult. That's spelled N-X-I-V-M for those who are unfamiliar with it. This was a huge story. And in the beginning, there was only one reporter who was exposing both the financial fraud and the sexual abuse of one Keith Ranieri, uh, who was ultimately sentenced to over 120 years in prison. But ultimately, the New York Times and the Albany Times Union would recognize the outstanding investigative reporting of Frank Parlato, uh, whose exposures brought that abusive cult down. Frank Parlato, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, There's always a lot of disinformation about this, so we'll dispose about it up front. Um, I had a brief intersection with Nexium myself. I must tell you, I never saw a, a nubile young harem of women who had been captured uh, by the cult. Uh, I uh, saw a group of middle-aged housewives taking a course to restore their self-esteem. Uh, but as I told you at the time, what I really thought were evidence of enormous financial crimes. It appeared to me that Keith Ranieri and others in the Nexium cult uh, targeted the children of extremely wealthy parents who had extremely large trust funds uh, in order to tap into those trust funds and essentially abscond with tens of millions of dollars. You dug much, much deeper, uh, and uh, tell folks what you found. Well, thank you for uh, relating it the way you did, because I think there's been kind of a twisted media narrative about your role in Nexium that seems to be distorted along political lines. But as I've written in my reporting, that you were one of the critical people who assisted and helped to expose the criminal enterprise of Nexium. And um, that was going back as far as 2007. You were perhaps the very first 
voice uh, against Nexium, and I clearly recall phone calls you made to me to uh, look into certain financial improprieties. So I think that the, the in, in typical media uh, reversal of truth, you helped in a serious way to bring Nexium down, and the reporting in some mainstream media has been precisely the opposite. Yeah, welcome to the fake news media. This was a, a persistent goal of yours, uh, and uh, you really did it single-handedly. For folks who haven't been to the frankreport.com, uh, Frank is one of the most courageous independent investigative journalists in the country, also one of the hardest working. Uh, the reason that we have him here today uh, is that Frank told me that he believes that the case in which, in which Penn State assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky uh, was tried uh, and convicted uh, of the sexual abuse uh, of multiple minors uh, and sent to prison almost 10 years ago is unjust. Uh, it is, uh, Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, it is your contention that Sandusky was uh, falsely accused and unjustly convicted. Uh, now, my recollection of this is that there were a number of boys who came forward and claimed that they were abused by Sandusky. Are you telling me today that all of those witnesses lied? Uh, yes, uh, that's my opinion. There's, there's some dispute over whether some of them who testified, and by the way, they were not boys, they were men when they testified, and every one of them had a civil attorney, and every one of them collected more than $1 million for their stories. And I believe personally that they all lied. Now, some scholars and people who studied the case believe that maybe some of them did not lie. They just were falsely encouraged to remember things that did not happen. Most of the accusers were subjected to something called repressed memory recovery where they did not remember that Jerry Sandusky abused them, but they took and underwent a tremendous amount of therapy to recall. And, the, and, and in these instances, they suddenly started to remember uh, abuse that led them <clears throat> to making anywhere between $1.5 million to $20 million for their testimony. Now, Frank, this case happened over 10 years ago. Sandusky was tried and convicted, uh, and he's in prison now. What, what motivated you to essentially reopen this case and investigate it anew? Well, it was actually just a, a happenstance. I, I, one of my writers had written a story about another unrelated matter, and they happened to mention Jerry Sandusky, and with the typical presumption, because he was convicted of him being guilty of abusing and molesting boys, uh, something which is, at, at that time, I thought to be a, a given. And I received a email from a re, uh, retired professor at Berkeley, Dr. Frederick Cruz, a very distinguished professor and author of 14 books, a couple of best-selling books, 
And he said to me in an email, everything that the public believes about Jerry Sandusky is exactly the opposite of the truth. Uh, uh, Amazing. So, uh, look, I'm not a giant sports fan, as I think uh, you actually heard Donald Trump say in the intro here. Uh, I guess I fail to understand the motive of the prosecutors. Uh, Look, I understand that there's corruption in the political climate, but Sandusky was not only a football coach, but he was a protege of the much-revered Joe Paterno, one of the legends of college football. What what was their motive here? What was the end game? Well, there was a a combination of motives. The governor at the time, uh, he had a personal uh, vendetta going against the president of Penn State. And um, the chairman or the head of the board of trustees had a personal vendetta against Joe Paterno. The accusers were rustled up by a number of civil lawyers who advertised for victims, understanding that Penn State would pay a fortune. And it was kind of a perfect storm of greed and opportunity that created a falsehood that expanded and enlarged by the media, whose own agenda is to uh, enjoy a lubricious story such as this one and celebrate it and pound away to see results, whether they're true or not. And the big uh, headline was Joe Paterno... All right. Well, we uh, lost our guest, who we presume will call back in uh, and rejoin us. You can go to the frankreport.com for his extraordinary reporting. Uh, I remember very well uh, his complete expose of the Nexium sex cult, which the New York Times didn't really pick up on what essentially was uh, Frank's uh, reporting. Uh, until such time uh, that he revealed that the head of this sex cult, Keith Ranieri, now in prison for uh, a sentence of over 120 years, uh, was actually branding with a metal hot brand uh, his victims. Uh, Frank Parlato uh, joins us uh, yet again. We're talking uh, about the uh, case against... Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky, uh, who almost 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, uh, was tried and convicted for uh, sexual assault against boys who, by the time they testified against him, uh, were men. Uh, Frank Parlato, investigative journalist, rejoins us now. Uh, Frank, this is obviously a very unpopular cause. Most people uh, have read and digested the media coverage of some time ago, which paints Sandusky as a predator, uh, and a number of others in Penn State as being part of a massive cover-up. Why did you decide to invest your time uh, and put your reputation on the line uh, in this investigation? And more importantly, what has been the response so far? 
Well, I spent three months looking at this case very carefully before I would venture uh, to publish my conclusion, which is that Jerry Sandusky not only got a very unfair trial, a show trial, but that he is innocent and that the accuser's stories, every last one of them, falls apart just based on evidence, based on what they said and the impossibility of uh, what they said. And so that I felt it was incumbent on me to bring this out while a man who is now 80 years old is sitting in prison now for the 11th year, he was railroaded into prison. And so I feel that it's important that we get public attention to this, and it has begun. There are people all over the nation and even in other countries who are beginning to take a brand new look at this issue, and anyone who studies it for just a fair amount of time will realize that Jerry Sandusky was railroaded into prison by a combination of corrupt and uh, maleficent forces. Uh, speak to us about Joe Paterno, whose uh, who's legend was also tarnished in the scandal. Joe Paterno uh, in Pennsylvania and in the world of college football was considered a god, uh, but this damaged his reputation uh, uh, exceedingly. What, if anything, was his role here? What, in your opinion, did Paterno know and what didn't he know? And has he been equally... Uh, uh, disserved by this narrative, as you claim Sandusky has? Well, there's no doubt that Joe Paterno, uh, the winningest coach in college football history, a man who deserves to be enshrined as a true national treasure, uh, was discredited and disgraced. He was uh, fired as the head coach uh, after some 60 years of service to Penn State by a man who had a personal animus against him, John Sherma, the former chairman of U.S. Steel, a trustee at Penn State, was bitter with Paterno because he had not put his nephew on the Penn State football team, and then apparently later his nephew um, made, a, made a hell of his life and possibly died in a drug overdose. So we had a man who was vindictive against Paterno, this supremely good man, Paterno, and they concocted a story with a, a devious man by the name of Mike McQuarrie, who created a fiction, and the prosecutors exaggerated that fiction to entail that Joe Paterno knew that Jerry Sandusky had abused the boy in the shower room, in the locker room at, in Penn State, <clears throat> a complete falsehood. A, a, a lie that even the jury saw through, but this lie carried around the nation so quickly that they fired Paterno. The following week, he had a medical checkup because of this distressing kind of information being fired. He, they discovered he had cancer, and he died two months later, his legacy in disgrace. If you're just tuning in, folks, we're talking to Frank Parlato Jr. of the Frank Report, investigative journalist. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back with more of Frank Parlato. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell 
but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back, folks. This is the Roger Stone Show. We're talking to Frank Parlato Jr., independent investigative journalist. You can find him at the FrankReport.com. Uh, and he is making the case to us today that uh, former assistant Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky uh, was unjustly accused of sexual assault against multiple minors uh, and convicted to prison uh, where he is now. Uh, Frank, what else uh, do you think people need to know about this case? How common is that psychiatric technique of bringing back repressed memories, uh, and why should people care about this? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons that I think it's significant. Um, firstly, a repressed, recovered memory has been largely discredited everywhere. Uh, it can induce false memories, and it should have been excluded in this case, but uh, Sandusky's attorney was not really competent for the task. He failed to challenge the uh, introduction of repressed memory. So what we find is we have eight men testifying who originally said that Jerry Sandusky never abused them, and then they go into court and they excuse their changed stories by saying they went, they recovered their memories. And suddenly, uh, with the help of the civil attorneys who re referred them to these psychologists, uh, I think, secondly, it's important because Joe Paterno has a, a, a vast throng of followers. And I found out this today. Uh, John Ziegler, who is a, a famous radio announcer, had communicated back in 2014 with Donald Trump about this. And I have a, a note from Trump that was sent to uh, Ziegler, the radio personality, where Trump's instincts suggested to him that there seemed to be a rush to judgment here. And I have that letter, and I think that Trump understood that um, this was an unjust prosecution, at least as it related to Paterno, who he was familiar with. And I think that there's a huge growing body of Pennsylvanians <clears throat> who are looking at this uh, anew. So, Frank, tell me what your ultimate plan here. Do you see this uh, as a, a book, as a documentary? I'm, I'm obviously have not seen your full findings, but I have enough experience with your investigative research techniques to know that you leave no stone unturned, pardon uh, pun uh, unintended. Uh, what is the next step? Well, we're going to continue to broadcast to present this information, and uh, what's happening is similar to what happened with Nexium and other uh, investigations that I've done is that more and more people become interested in this. They realize there's been an injustice, and then uh, gradually and reluctantly, the mainstream media catches on. And you know, this to hear this appearance today is a significant one. Where I'm speaking on the uh, most prominent, important radio station in the United States, and this is the beginning. 
gradually the main goal is to free Jerry Sandusky, number one, first and foremost, he's in prison. Number two is to restore Paterno's legacy, because if Jerry Sandusky's innocent, it stands to reason Paterno is 100% innocent as well. Uh, and then after that, we'll look at there's a documentary coming, a book coming, many things coming, and reform. And perhaps some of the sinister liars and corrupt actors will get their just reward. Now, Frank, I didn't know this until you told me the other day that you have uh, not only uh, been involved in the production of a number of other important documentaries, uh, but you write all your own music for those documentaries. Uh, and you made a very interesting point about the importance uh, of music uh, in telling a story. Talk to us about that. <clears throat> I believe that Hollywood has understood this for quite a number of years and that by using the right kind of uh, chords, harmony, key signature, the progression of melodies and sometimes repetition can, on a subliminal level, can soothe and open the subconscious mind to a receptive point of view that the director intends. And I think it's been very well done in big films in Hollywood, and I think that the, the world is yet to really fully appreciate the importance of subtle things like music in a production. Uh, very, very, very good point. Uh, going back to your Nexium research, one question I wanted to ask you. Uh, the actress Catherine Oxenberg... Uh, who I greatly admired both as an actress and who I had the privilege to just meet socially, was among those whose children disappeared into the Nexium cult. Uh, how did that story end up? Well, it ended up happily. And in fact, it was Catherine Oxenberg that called me uh, because she couldn't get anyone in mainstream media to take up her challenge, which was her daughter had been branded. Uh, with Keith Ranieri's initials and had signed a pact of slavery and had provided a good deal of blackmail-worthy <clears throat> information so that she could be maintained as a quote-unquote slave. And Catherine called me and she asked me to help out. And I started writing stories and uh, ultimately uh, the New York Times took up my story. Then the uh, FBI began an investigation and a few months later, Ranieri was arrested, and uh, India Oxenberg, Catherine's daughter, was freed from her thraldom. And uh, now here lives in Key West, uh, has a restaurant, and has, which, as we say, lived happily ever after. Uh, that is a truly great story. And if you talk to Catherine Oxenberg, please uh, extend my best regards to her. All right, folks, uh, I've got, I promised you my famous chicken cacciatore recipe and you're about to hear it let me thank frank parlato investigative journalist you can go to the frankreport.com to read his research and investigations including uh, regarding the sandusky case which we talked about today thanks for joining us frank on the roger stone show thank you roger uh well folks i said it in the opening except nothing other than genuine San Marzano tomatoes. 
Uh, those are not a brand of tomatoes. That is a style of tomatoes. But to make my mother's famous chicken cacciatore, you need a roasting chicken, some flour, six tablespoons of olive oil, a half pound of mushrooms, uh, one chopped cup of onions, uh, one half cup of fine white wine, uh, a medium-sized can of, yes, San Marzano tomatoes, a tablespoon of brandy, uh, just a few sprigs of parsley chopped. Parsley is very, very strong. You never want to overuse it. A clove of garlic and, well, two tablespoons of butter. Now, cut the chicken into pieces, sprinkle it with salt and pepper, roll it in the flour, and fry in the olive oil until golden brown. Now, remove the chicken from the pan, and to the remaining oil, add the mushrooms, chopped onions, and cook until slightly brown. Now add the wine and tomatoes uh, and uh, put the chicken back in the pan uh, after uh, that is cooked for a bit for five minutes, making sure that it is well heated throughout. Now is when you add the brandy, the chopped parsley, and then, then and only end then the garlic. Cover this and cook it slowly when the chicken is tender, that's when you add the butter. Now, here's the key thing, folks, which is you can serve this uh, over pasta or you can serve it under over rice. So now you have yet another of uh, Gloria Corbo Stone's family recipes, which we are proud to bring you. But once again, inspect that tomato can carefully. Uh, because you don't want San Marzano-style tomatoes. Uh, you want the real thing, San Marzano tomatoes from the San Marzano Valley. You can get them at D'Agostino's. You can get them at Cristini's. You can get them at fine supermarkets everywhere, but under no circumstances except anything other than the genuine article. I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back. Coming up is Tulsi Gabbard, the former Hawaiian congressman, former Democrat, now an independent, and suddenly it seems a relatively hot prospect to be uh, the nominee of the Republican Party for Donald J. Trump for vice president. We'll be right back. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. Joining me now is former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who is not only a former member of Congress, but an officer in the United States Army Reserve, where she holds the offer, office of, uh, or the rank, I should say, of Lieutenant Colonel. She served in the U.S. Congress as a representative from Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District from 2013 to 2021. Uh, and she announced in October of 2022 uh, that she was leaving the Democratic Party after seeking that party's nomination for president in 2020. 
In 2002, Tulsi Gabbard was elected to the Hawaiian House of Representatives at the tender age of 21. She served her country in the uh, Iraq War uh, uh, debacle, uh, and uh, she joins us today on the Roger Stone Show. Tulsi Gabbard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Roger. It is great to join you today. Um, great to be with you and your audience. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I mentioned this to you in a text. You may hear some gunfire in the background. Uh, I just wrapped up competing in uh, a competition with the tactical game. So don't be alarmed by the background noise. All right, we very much appreciate that. Uh, you made a, uh, a groundbreaking speech, an extraordinary speech, uh, at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, I noticed, by the way, that you delivered uh, an incredibly eloquent speech uh, without a single note, which is very, very difficult to do. Uh, uh, let's uh, play that bite of Tulsi Gabbard at the CPAC conference, specifically here talking about the candidacy of Nikki Haley uh, and President Donald Trump. Now, if you listen to what Nikki Haley has been saying, she claims that she claims that President Trump only cares about himself and that he's doing all that he's doing only for himself. If that were the case, wouldn't he just walk away from all this? Walk away from the headaches and the attacks and the stress that he's enduring right now? So why doesn't he? I've had the chance to meet with him and speak with him at length. And I've seen firsthand his heartfelt interactions with friends of mine, veterans. And I've seen how he has touched their hearts and moved them to tears as he expressed his appreciation for their service and their sacrifice. No cameras, no crowds, just that heartfelt conveyance of appreciation. I've gotten a sense for what motivates him, and it's got nothing to do with what the Washington establishment is accusing him of. This is a man who's a fighter. He has strength and resilience. His strength and resilience can only come from one place. His ability to endure this hardship can only come from one place, and that's a sincere love and concern for the future of our country and his care for the American people. Uh, an extraordinarily powerful speech, uh, and I congratulate you for it. Uh, it's interesting that a straw poll taken of those who participated in the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is always avidly watched for those years in which there's an open presidential nomination, or uh, in this case for the vice presidency, uh, showed uh, that uh, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem was the choice of a mere 15 percent. She ran an active operation, by the way, to try to rack up votes. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who only recently ended his own most interesting presidential campaign, uh, also uh, scored at 15 percent. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, you were third with 9%. I know you mounted no effort on your own behalf. That is clearly on the basis of the strong speech you made. 
uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, friend of the show, has been in a, a guest here on the Roger Stone Show, scored uh, at 8. Senator Tip, Tim Scott also scored at 8%. Governor Ron DeSantis, who, for reasons we explained earlier, under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, would not be eligible to be a vice presidential candidate with Donald Trump because both DeSantis and Trump are legal residents of the state of Florida, unallowable under the rules of the Electoral College as well as the uh, uh, 12th Amendment. Uh, and uh, Byron Donalds, who I also greatly admire and like, scored uh, at seven. That's uh, really quite extraordinary. Uh, I thought you handled this extremely well when Janine Pirro asked you the other night um, uh, whether you would accept uh, a vice presidential nomination if you were asked. Uh, tell us again what you told Janine Pirro. Roger, my goal has and continues to be and will always be seeking out ways where I can, ways and positions where I can uh, best serve our country and be in a position where I can actually make a positive impact and uh, help to solve many of the challenges that we are facing both here at home and abroad. Uh, and so if, if asked to serve in that position or others where I could make that impact, of course I would be honored uh, to be able to do that. Uh, there, there are so many different issues that we're facing. Um, I have the opportunity to travel the, the country right now. Uh, as you know, my book will be coming out soon. It's called For Love of Country, Leave the Democrat Party Behind. I'm speaking to people, many of them, who feel politically homeless. Uh, a lot of Democrats who feel as though, like I did, that the Democrat Party has left them behind. And independents who are frustrated with the Washington establishment. There's a lot of people who really want to feel hopeful again about our future. Unfortunately, under the Biden-Harris administration, they have set us on a path of destruction of our democracy, undermining our Constitution, undermining the rule of law, the very, the very foundational uh, principles and institutions our country was founded upon. And I really believe, and I'm seeing it, Roger, with my own two eyes and ears as, as I meet with folks across the country, we have an opportunity to come together and unite around our founding principles and our shared love of freedom, of peace, and the opportunity for, you know, us and our next generation to, to grow up and, and pursue that happiness and prosperity that, that our founders envisioned for us all. You know, I'm a great believer uh, in redemption. I think people change over time. Uh, when I tell friends uh, how impressed I am with your courage and your speaking out against the war machine, uh, they often point out to me that you, know, you were once a Democrat. In fact, you were once vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee from 2013 to 2016, and you actually endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders for president in 2016. But People change. I worked for Ronald Reagan, who took the conservative movement started by Barry Goldwater and brought it to maturity in this country. He was not only once a Democrat, but he was the most liberal of New Deal Democrats. People change as they get new information. Was there a specific event uh, that triggered your decision to leave the Democratic Party and become an independent? 
Yeah, Roger, a couple things I want to say on that. First of all, to directly answer your question, there wasn't one specific triggering event. Uh, you know, throughout my time in Congress or throughout my time involved with politics at all, I've always been an independent-minded person. And, and uh, shortly after I was elected to Congress, you know, there was a lot of news and people saying, oh, you know, she's the, she's the rising star of the Democratic Party, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it didn't last long once they realized that I had a mind of my own and that I had no issue calling them out when they were wrong. Uh, and taking a stand based on principle and doing my best to do what was right for the American people and our country. Uh, and and so, you know, in 2016, you mentioned my endorsement of Bernie Sanders. I endorsed Bernie Sanders because I saw an opportunity. It's really around one major issue, and that was the issue of war. Hillary Clinton is the queen of warmongers. She is the ultra-neocon. And Bernie Sanders, you know, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but on that issue, at least, he seems to be more of a non-interventionist. And I resigned as vice chair of the DNC to endorse him and have that platform to point out the dangerous threat that a President Hillary Clinton would pose to the country. Because trust me, as you remember, Roger, the mainstream media wasn't doing it. They were all saying she's the most qualified person ever to run for president. No one ever challenged her on her record as Secretary of State. No one ever challenged her on the, the absolute uh, abysmal consequences, costly, deathly consequences of what she pushed as Secretary of State and what she voted for as a U.S. Senator. And so as, as, as I went forward throughout the years, uh, the Democratic Party, even as, as a 2020 candidate for president in a Democratic Party, my goal was to see if I could somehow within the party bring about change, bring about change to the party to take it back to the party that JFK once led, to the party that Martin Luther King uh, once was a part of. Uh, unfortunately, I saw a lot and learned a lot throughout that whole experience and got to the point where there was just no way that I could in, could in good conscience associate myself with that party. The last thing I'll say about this, Roger, that, that you brought up is people change. Uh, I would hope that whether in life, in personal relationships or business or even in politics, wouldn't you want people who can learn from new information or new experiences and draw different conclusions? If we are all stuck in the place that we once were, unwilling to change, unwilling to evolve, then that would be a pretty bad outcome that would, that would deliver a pretty bad outcome uh, for the country and as we look to this next election and this is why I'm spending the rest of this year through November 5th talking to as many people as I possibly can if we treat people with respect those who may be Democrats or used to be Democrats or independents they can be won over to consider the truth of how the Biden-Harris administration is destroying our country and to see that there is a better choice out there. If you treat people like crap, they're not going to listen to a word you have to say. So I, I, it's what I'm trying to do. It's what I encourage other people to do. It's the message I deliver to the audience at CPAC. Don't just talk about, don't just talk to and hang out with people you agree with. You don't win elections and bring about change that way. You've got to be willing to talk to folks who, who you may not be sure whether you agree on everything. Have a real conversation. we got to bring back dialogue in this country and move forward together around the fundamental principles 
that make us who we are as Americans and as a country. Uh, you are at a shooting contest in Arizona right now, as you told me. Uh, one of the criticisms, I think, which is inaccurate that I keep seeing online is that you are uh, uh, an opponent of the Second Amendment. Uh, I read a very good piece about this not long ago. Your views have evolved on that issue, but not recently. Uh, tell us uh, your current position regarding the right to keep and bear arms. I wholeheartedly support the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, this is something that I've talked about now for uh, the last few years. You know, my exposure, I grew up in Hawaii, the state that has very, very strict gun laws. So my exposure to guns was minimal at best for most of my life. Even even after I joined uh, the military, obviously, there, there was military training and, and uh, preparation for deployments. But uh, there was a lot that I was exposed to. There's a lot of people who came and talked to me both throughout the 2020 presidential campaign, but also seeing how, seeing how increasingly tyrannical our government became through 2020, through the COVID uh, crisis, and, and continuing to this day, my eyes were really opened to our founders' intent in saying, yes, we have the right to keep and bear arms for sport, as I'm out here doing uh, this weekend here in Arizona, competitive shooting. I'm having a blast. So much fun uh, for people who like to hunt for self-defense to protect yourselves and your loved ones, but also as a check on the power of an increasingly tyrannical government. Uh, I had heard this before many years ago, and honestly, maybe and there's a lot of, of, of other people who felt the way that I did, that I, I couldn't imagine that we would be in a place in my lifetime where we have people in the highest positions of power in our government using the national security state, using the mainstream propaganda media, using all the tools at their disposal to take away our freedom, to take away our right to vote for the president of our choosing, to take away uh, our, our free speech in, in saying, well, this kind of speech is allowed and this is not. And, this is the kind of information you're allowed to see and what you're not. And you've got to stay in your house during COVID. You're not allowed to go and worship in a church. But if you go to a bar, a strip club, that's fine. Uh, you're not allowed to gather in large groups unless you're marching with Black Lives Matter. There was so much that happened that, that really opened my eyes uh, to our founders' intent in passing the Second Amendment and wholeheartedly uh, support it and will defend it. Uh, look, I'm a political junkie, and uh, I love politics. We have a bite here from your debate when you ran for president, uh, and you clashed with Kamala Harris. Let's roll that. I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence, she blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. 
Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response? As the elected Attorney General of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about re-entering former offenders and getting them counseling. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. I don't know, Tulsi, I have a feeling that Kamala Harris uh, is not looking forward to a potential rematch with you in a debate. Uh, you know, there, there, there hasn't been a whole lot that I could point to. I can't actually think of a single thing as I'm sitting here talking to you that she could speak about and defend uh, on a debate stage. Uh, every single thing that she has been tasked to do that I'm aware of that's been publicly talked about, uh, we can see has turned out not only to be an abysmal failure, but, but these problems like those on the border have gotten worse. Uh, I'm actually, as you mentioned, I'm out here in Arizona. I've had the chance to spend some time with some great Customs and Border Patrol agents, talking to them and hearing about the work that they're doing uh, on a daily basis in in serving as the frontline troops in this crisis of of millions of people coming across, streaming across our borders illegally throughout the, the last three years of the Biden administration. The problem has gotten worse not better. If I recall correctly, uh, this was an issue that President Biden gave to Kamala Harris to handle. So if given the opportunity, uh, I would look forward to exposing the truth about her failures and about how dangerous she would be serving not only as a vice president, because you and I both know that really a vote for Biden is a vote for a President Kamala Harris, which we cannot allow to happen. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show. We're talking to former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and we'll be right back with Tulsi Gabbard uh, after this message. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now... Here's Roger Stone. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we're here still with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. We have a few more minutes uh, to go. Her new book for Love of Country, uh, uh, available soon. I spoke to her the other night to ask her to do the show. She was signing books, or signing books until her hand hurt. I've been in that situation. I wish you the very best with that tome. Uh, uh, Tulsi, if you were in the house now... Uh, and the proposal to send $95 billion more to Ukraine that uh, also included additional aid for Israel, additional uh, aid for Taiwan, 
uh, and some funding, but really funding not to seal the border, but to process those coming into the country illegally. How would you have voted? You know, the devil is in the details, uh, as always, with these pieces of legislation, and it's the small things that they try to sneak through under the guise of the bigger talking points that we've got to pay attention to. Uh, you know, I, I would have voted against that bill for a few reasons. Number one, they should have, and this goes for every issue, introduced standalone pieces of legislation so that our elected representatives in Congress can vote up or down based on the subs, the pros and cons, the merits of that singular piece of legislation. So you just mentioned four different things that were included in that bill uh, that, that members of Congress and the Senate were seeking to fund. Uh, they were doing that strategically because they knew some of those things might not be so popular. Uh, I think it's important for us to be able to hold our leaders accountable. We can do that when they actually introduce standalone pieces of legislation that are that are focused on one specific thing. The biggest issue that I had with the border portion of that bill, and I get that sometimes you got to make compromise, and you do as you're negotiating legislation, it actually would have codified into law the illegal entry of people into our country. There were limitations on the emergency powers that that legislation uh, would give the president insofar as how often it could be activated. There were limitations in how often it could be used. That, in my mind, is a dangerous precedent to set to say, well, hey, it's okay for a certain number of people to break our laws and enter our country illegally as long as it stays under this number. If we have laws on the books, they need to be enforced. Period. There were good pieces of that legislation, but passing into law, codifying into law, legalizing people breaking our laws to illegally enter our country is ridiculous. I just talked to a guy today who's seeking permanent residency and a green card. He uh, has moved here from Israel several years ago. He has waited years and spent a ton of money on immigration lawyers just to try to get a green card. So as you can imagine, his family is incredibly frustrated to see how many people are breaking our laws and cutting to the front of the line, and there's no repercussions or consequences. Uh, with regard, and I know we're wrapping up here quickly, uh, the, specifically I want to touch on the funding for Ukraine. There continues to be a blank check being written once again without any accountability for how that money is being spent and without any explanation or description of what exactly is our objective? I think we, as the American people, should not accept what we're hearing from the Biden-Harris administration directly from President Biden and Kamala Harris, which is we are in this for as long as it takes. What does as long as it takes mean? What does winning look like? People who say, well, it's until Putin is defeated. There's two big problems with that. Number one, it's just not going to happen. They're living in a fantasy world. There are many more people. He has a lot more money and a lot more troops than Ukraine. He will outnumber them and bleed them through a war of attrition for as long as it takes for him to hold on to power. Number two, even if they were successful in getting rid of Putin, which is really the goal of the Biden-Harris administration, is regime change. They have not talked about what happens next, who comes next. There are many examples that we can point to. I'll point to Gaddafi in Libya 
they got rid of him because he was a bad guy. But look at Libya today. It is, it is a failed state, a stronghold for Islamist terrorists, and a country where human beings are treated as slaves in broad daylight. Once again, the foreign policy establishment in Washington, Democrats and Republicans, are so short-sighted at a great cost to the American people and our national security. All right. Thank you, Chelsea Gabbard, for joining us today on The Roger Stone Show. And folks, stay tuned for Joe Piscopo with Sundays with Sinatra. <laughs> 